Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. As we continue in our spring series leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus this morning, we have one of the most wonderful passages in the whole Bible to consider. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, words written for you and written for me. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, a number of years ago, I read an absolutely fascinating book called Blind Man's Bluff, which gives an excellent summary and history of U.S. spy submarine operations, and it reads like a Tom Clancy novel, but it's true. And it is so good if you're into that kind of thing. For example, in 1970, the U.S. Navy refitted and reassigned one of its submarines to a group tasked with deep sea search and recovery missions. Its name was the USS Halibut because like the fish, it had a funny shape. And they used that shape to full advantage. With the refit, they were able to deploy at great depths um, deep sea saturation divers, meaning divers who could dive at great depths. And they wanted to use this new technology and this new ability, this new submarine, to wiretap Soviet communication cables on the bottom of the ocean to listen in on what they were doing and what they were planning and what they were thinking. Now it's one thing to have the technology to go down at great depths and tap these cables 
It's another thing altogether to find those cables. Cables no thicker than five inches across in over 600,000 square miles of ocean. They had the technology to tap it, but how in the world would they find these cables? Turns out, the answer was hiding in plain sight. And this is what this makes this book so fascinating. True story. One morning, in his office at the Pentagon at 3 a.m., James Bradley, who was the undersea warfare director of the U.S. Navy, he thought back to his time as a boy when he would ride in a boat down the Mississippi River. And he would look up at the shore and he would see signs on the shore that would say, cable crossing, do not anchor. Cable crossing, do not anchor. And he said, it couldn't be that simple. There's no way that the Soviets would have signs on their submarine base that said, cable crossing, do not anchor. And so he goes to his higher-ups. They didn't even know that these cables existed. He got permission to do an incredibly secret mission. We sent a submarine over to one of their desolate submarine bases at great risk, deployed the periscope, and wouldn't you know, on the shore is a sign in Russian that says, Cable Crossing, do not anchor. They went down and they tapped that cable for 10 years and got a treasure trove of information. Absolutely amazing what you can find when you know what you're looking for. If you have the eyes to see. And so it makes you wonder how so many of the Israelites could have missed the coming of Messiah when he did so many miracles right in front of them. Miracles so many and varied and so powerful that they were able to convince and encourage John the Baptist when he was languishing in prison. If you remember back to last week when John the Baptist was languishing in Herod's prison, afraid he was going to die, he began to doubt. So he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we look for another? Do you remember what happened? Jesus performed a variety of miracles and he said to the disciples of John the Baptist, the blind see, the lame walk, good news is preached to the poor, go back and tell that to John the Baptist. And he did and it was a great encouragement to John. Amazingly, tragically, the Israelites were not interested in the kind of Savior and Messiah that Jesus was, and therefore they would not come to him. Despite this evidence, they would not come to him. And this, so the question is for us, as we come to this text today, is will we see him for who he is, and will we, will you, Will you come to him? Will you learn from him? Will you open your heart to him? That's the question of this text. And let's look at it together. Let's go to verse 
20. Verse 20, then he, then Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Here's the key, because they did not repent. And so the context of this is what I just mentioned. The context of this is John the Baptist has sent his disciples to Jesus to inquire, was he the one or should they look for another? Jesus does all these miracles and he sends them back. And it's in the context of this that he begins to denounce these cities. Because while his miracles were an encouragement to the disciples of John the Baptist and John the Baptist himself, these miracles did not move the needle, as it were, among the Israelites. The miracles of Jesus did not elicit repentance and belief in him. And that was the reason for the miracles. The reason for the miracles was to authenticate and verify that this is the long-awaited and anticipated one. This is the Messiah of God. That's what the miracles were intended to do. That was their primary reason. It wasn't necessarily to heal all the people, though that was a benefit. It was to prove and establish that Jesus was the Messiah. But it sadly, it did not elicit the repentance that, that was its reason and so Jesus spoke the following words to people before whom he had done the most amazing signs and miracles. Verse 21, kind of a series of woes. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. So Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. They're all very close. If you remember back to a few weeks ago, do you remember where Jesus' home base was? Do you remember where his home was? His kind of adoptive home was the home of Peter and Andrew in Capernaum. That was his home base of operation. The northern part of the Sea of Galilee is where he did the vast majority of his miracles. So Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. That was the hub of his ministry. Verse 21. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And that's quite a statement because Tyre and Sidon were pagan Gentile coastal cities that were very proud and very belligerent toward God and had been cursed in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, if I had done the things in those places that I did for you, they would have repented and believed. That was quite an indictment on the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, so do you remember when the paralytic was lowered through the roof for Jesus to heal? That was most likely in the house of Peter and Andrew in Capernaum. An undeniable miracle. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you 
had been done in Sodom. Remember Sodom was that wicked city that was destroyed back in Genesis 19. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In other words, the more light that's given, the more truth that is revealed, the more accountability there is. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, to whom much is given, what? Much is required. To whom much is given, much is expected. Jesus had done undeniable miracles in their midst, and they would not believe. Signs that would have convinced the most wicked people of the Old Testament did not move the needle for Jesus' own people. They were happy to bring all their sick to him, um, all the people that had a need for healing they brought to him, but they would not bring their hearts to him. Isn't that amazing? How could Jesus do all these miracles before his own people and they would not repent and they would not come to him and they would not believe? Sadly, I think it's much easier than we would imagine to respond just like those people did. In fact, that's the way that I had responded all my life until college. I had not seen a miracle per se, obviously, but I was born and raised in the church. I had been raised all my life to believe that Jesus Christ was the Savior of sinners and the Son of God. And I really did believe that. I believed that Jesus of Nazareth was God and was the Savior of God's people, but I was not willing to give my life to him. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, there was no doubt in my mind that the gospel was true. I can remember, I've told you before, lying in bed in middle school, in high school, considering the claims of the Lord Jesus, and feeling um, that I just wasn't ready to do it, because I knew in my heart what it would mean. That if I gave my life to Jesus, that he would require all of me. I didn't know all that that would entail, but I knew that to trust in Jesus, that Jesus would require all of me. And so even though on one level, on the one hand, I believed he was the Christ, I would not come to him. I would not learn from him. I would not open my heart to him. Happens all the time. It's very possible to acknowledge the glories of Jesus Christ and not come to him. The Jews, they disregarded the miracles of Jesus and the person of Jesus for different reasons. They disregarded Jesus because they were disgusted by him. Remember last week, there's that curious line when Jesus sent the disciples of John the Baptist back to him. Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not what? Do you remember? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And that's what the Jews were. They were ashamed of him. They were kind of disgusted by him. They were offended by him because he was not the kind of savior they were looking for. He was gentle 
and lowly, approachable. He came with the promise of life and salvation. He did not ride in on a white horse, bigger than life. He was not at all the kind of savior they were looking for, and therefore, therefore they would not trust their hearts and their lives to such a man. Remember back to Isaiah 53, there was nothing about Jesus' physical appearance that would draw you to him. Nothing about his physical appearance that would indicate that this was the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And they were happy to bring their sick to him, but they were not willing to open their hearts to him. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's kind of the irony of the situation. When Jesus spoke about the wise and understanding, he's speaking with irony, okay? He was speaking about people who viewed themselves to be wise and understanding. In fact, that's what the people of Capernaum were saying. If you look back to the text, kind of the mindset of Capernaum. In verse 23, in Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Why did he ask that rhetorical question? Because that was their mindset. They thought they were fine. They thought they would be honored in heaven because they were the people of God. When Jesus spoke about the wise and understanding, he was speaking about people who viewed themselves to be wise and understanding. People who did not see their need. And therefore, they blew off the signs. Thankfully, that wasn't the case with everyone, however. Some people saw these signs, saw the miracles, came to Jesus, opened their hearts to them. A teachable, humble people. He refers to them in verses 25 and 26 as little children in the same way that little children respond to the teaching and the wise instruction of their par parents. That's how the humble that's how people who know their need respond to the Lord Jesus. People ready to come to Jesus and learn from him and open their hearts to him. And to them, the people who knew their burden and knew their need, Jesus was the most wonderful person they had ever met. Verses 27 through 30. And it was texts like these, verses like these that drew me to the Lord Jesus in college. They were some of the most wonderful words I had ever read. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here comes the most wonderful invitation ever extended. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Have you ever in your life read anything so wonderful? Listen to how one writer summarizes the meaning of these words. He put it so well. The Greek word translated gentle can also be translated as meek or humble or gentle. It means Jesus is not harsh, reactionary, or easily exasperated. Jesus is the most understanding person in the entire universe. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The meaning of the word lowly overlaps with the meaning of the word gentle, together communicating a single reality about Jesus' heart. This specific word lowly is generally translated humble in the New Testament. And here's the key. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is to say that Jesus is accessible. For all of his glory and dazzling holiness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through, no minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus. It is simply this. Open yourself to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing that he works with. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself or clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Your burden, your neediness is what qualifies you to come to him. No payment is required. The Lord Jesus says to every one of you, come to me and I will give you rest. Gentle and lowly. Can you believe it? Gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very own heart. This is who Jesus is. He is tender. He is open. He is welcoming. He is accommodating. He is understanding. He is willing. He says, I am here to exchange burdens with you. I am here to give you the rest that you long for, that you were created for. Be yoked to me. You know what a yoke was back in the day? It was a wooden harness where two oxen would be connected together and together they could do things that one of them could not do alone. It was not unusual to pair a large, mature, experienced oxen with a younger one, the older one, the stronger one, pulling all the load, the younger one learning, gaining experience. That's the picture here. The Lord Jesus Christ carrying the load, us going with him in the same direction, learning from him, being cared for by him. Jesus says to all of us, 
Don't you want that burden gone? Don't you want me to deal with your sin and your shame and your guilt and your perceived feeling of unworthiness? I will take it all away. And I'll give you my burden, which is easy and light, and you will find rest. Come to me, and I will do it for you now, and I will do it for you all the days of your life. Beloved, the most beautiful words we could ever hear, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the kind of Savior that you have given to us. Not an unapproachable, separate, distant, aloof, judgmental Savior. Oh no. Father, we thank you that you have given to us your very own Son. A Son who is a Savior and who is gentle and lowly and loving and willing and accommodating and caring and more than anything at all, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is accessible. Father, I pray by your Spirit today that you would help us to come to him and to learn from him and to rest in him, not only today, but all the days of our life until we rest with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, give us of you for this kind of Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.